Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you as ever to please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you are listening to it right now. I'm also telling you that we're on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. We, of course, have merch available at poppantheonpod.com in our merch store, including our niche legend dad hat. And we're available on Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon, where we publish at least three bonus episodes of the show per month. This week's episode is actually a deep dive into Christina Aguilera's seminal second English language album, Stripped, with my dear friend Lala Thompson. You requested it. We did it. It's such a fun episode. So Get that over at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Okay, a few things to promo. Gorgeous, gorgeous, my queer pop party has a number of installments coming up, three to be exact, two in New York and one in Los Angeles. We will be in New York for our Halloween party, Spooky Gorgeous, on Friday, tomorrow, October 27th at the Sultan Room. Those tickets are sold out online, but they will be available at the door. I repeat, they will be available at the door. So come early, grab your ticket, and we'll see you at Spooky Gorgeous on October 27th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. Oh, and also, we just announced that there will be a costume contest for that party for Spooky Gorgeous. The top winning costume will receive a $200 grand prize and the second place winner will get $100. So show us your best costumes at Spooky Gorgeous. Okay, that's that. The next installment will be on November 10th at Resident in downtown Los Angeles. Tickets for that also will be available in the show notes of this episode. And then we will be back in New York on November 16th in conjunction with our dear friends at Who Weekly. I know that there are so many hooligans who also listen to Pop Pantheon. Anyway, Who Weekly's got a huge show coming up in Times Square on November 16th at the Palladium. And we will be doing a gorgeous, gorgeous Times Who Weekly after party at Fishbowl at the Dream Midtown on 55th Street on November 16th after Who Weekly show. And tickets for that will also be available in the show notes of this episode. So a lot of gorgeous gorgeouses coming up. All right, next up, a week from today, November 2nd, at the Crawford Auditorium in Pasadena, in conjunction with our friends at LAist, Pop Pantheon is going to be having its first live show, Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's Music, Memoir, and Legacy. Obviously, Britney's Memoir came out this week, so we're going to be using that as a launch pad to discuss all of her work, any revelations in the memoir. It's going to be such a great conversation. We have, of course, our dear friend and the dean of the Thornton School of Music at USC, Jason King, on the panel. We have everyone's fave who just appeared on our very popular Jessica and Ashley Simpson episode, host of Beyond the Blinds podcast, Troy McKeady. And we have the fabulous host of the Los Angeles podcast, Kirby Johnson, joining me on stage for this conversation. It's going to be so incredible. I literally am like shaking with excitement. Also, it's sold really well, so it's going to be a packed house. There's still a few tickets available, so grab those in the show notes of this episode or by going to las.com. Also, we'll be doing a little Britney-themed dance party slash gorgeous gorgeous in the parking lot after the show, so it's going to be an all-around great night. Again, that is on November 2nd at the Crawford in Pasadena, and 
grab your tickets while you still can. On the note of the live show, and I'm sorry this is such an announcement-heavy episode, we are soliciting Britney-themed questions that we're either going to use during the live show or for possible Britney-themed content coming up on this podcast and on our Patreon channel. So if you have questions about Britney, specifically related to her music, her legacy, but also related to the memoir, anything Britney-related, really, please send them to us at poppantheonpod at gmail.com. There will be a number of chances to hear your answers, even if you're not at the live show. So send us questions about Britney to poppantheonpod at gmail.com. All right, so this week's episode is one I've honestly been dying to do for a really long time. It's about Bruno Mars, who I find to be someone that is hard for me to get my arms around because while I love a lot of his music, and I really mean that, he's made some of my favorite songs of the past decade plus of pop, I also find him difficult to understand as a pop star because I don't quite know how to parse somebody who makes mimicry, homage, and pastiche the center of their work as a pop figure, especially as pop music continues to be increasingly about cults of personalities around idiosyncratic pop stars. Bruno Mars really stands out to me as someone who's hard to know and whose role in their music and discography feels tangential weirdly to their curation of vibes or curation of nostalgia so to speak so it was a really fun conversation to get to try to figure this guy out so that's enough for me without further ado here is pop pantheon bruno mars Is Bruno Mars even a pop star to begin with? This is the most pertinent question rattling around my brain after mightily trying to parse his career and work. Don't get me wrong, Bruno Mars is most certainly an excellent, even preternaturally gifted and meticulous maker of pop music, one of the best we have working today. He's also a very good pop performer, an old school showman who dazzles with his precision, glitz, and virtuosity on stage. Moreover, he's an artist who takes the idea of pop music in a genre sense very seriously, crafting hits that feel scientifically engineered, sometimes to a fault, but often to highly pleasurable effect for maximal popularity. But unlike almost every superstar in history, Bruno, with a childhood spent impersonating greats like Elvis and Michael Jackson, discography defined by studied homages, and an increasingly single-minded focus on exacting emulations of past icons and styles, feels strangely tangential to his own music. He curates an experience for his listeners, but is not central to his own work. He is pop history's greatest mimic, there to guide you from the sidelines on a joyous and rigorous nostalgia trip, rather than tell you anything about himself. If pop stars are increasingly cults of personality, I'm not entirely sure that Bruno has one, and if he does, whether he wants anyone to see it. So I'm left wondering, is Bruno Mars an actual pop star, or just the most thrilling impersonator of one the charts have ever seen? P. 
Peter Jean Hernandez was born in Honolulu, Hawaii in 1985, and young Peter had showbiz in his blood. His parents met playing a show together where his mother, Bernadette, was a hula dancer and his father, Peter, played percussion. The two came from mixed backgrounds. Peter Sr. is Puerto Rican and Jewish by way of Brooklyn, and Bernadette immigrated from the Philippines and has Spanish heritage. By age five, Bruno was playing in his family's band, The Love Note, and appearing around Waikiki as an Elvis impersonator dubbed Little Elvis. By six, he debuted the impression on the Arsenio Hall show and soon after had a cameo in the Nicolas Cage film Honeymoon in Vegas. In high school, he continued impersonation gigs and expanded his repertoire to include Michael Jackson. He also sang in a group called The Schoolboys, but left Waikiki for LA at age 17 to pursue a solo career. Bruno had tons of failed starts, including a short-lived deal at Motown in the early 2000s, and in the middle part of that decade, he set his solo ambitions aside and went to work writing and producing songs for other artists, including Adam Levine, Brandy, Sean Kingston, and The Sugar Babes. Bruno and his producing partner, Philip Lawrence, scored their first big hit in the U.S. in 2008, co-writing Flo Rider's number one smash, Right Round, featuring Kesha. The two then teamed up with another writer and producer, Ari Levine, to form the production group, The Smeezingtons. The group caught the industry's attention with two more hits, both of which featured Bruno on the hook. The number four peaking Travi McCoy single, Billionaire, and the number one B.O.B. smash, Nothing on You. Striking while the iron was hot, Bruno signed a new record deal with Atlantic and released his own debut album, 2010's Doo-Wops and Hooligans, led off by a slice of utterly anodyne and sappy, yet undeniably cinematic pop perfection, Just the Way You Are, which reached the top of the Hot 100 and went on to score a nomination for Record of the Year at the Grammys. When I see you Just the Way You Are helped power Doo-Wops and Hooligans, a set of 10 profoundly tightly stitched and nearly aggressively inoffensive pop baubles to sell 16 million copies worldwide. All five singles went platinum, with the sweepingly melodramatic grenade following Just the Way You Are to number one, and the Jack Johnson light reggae slacker anthem The Lazy Song, a song I truly feel the less said about, the better for my mental health, hitting number four. Doo-Wops was so huge, so obscenely broad in its appeal that it is literally today, 13 years after its release on October 23rd, 2023, sitting pretty at number 112 on the Billboard 200 Albums chart. The Smeezingtons, meanwhile, were still stacking up hits. A month after Bruno released Just The Way You Are, the trio wrote and produced CeeLo Green's radio-dominating Motown tribute, Fuck You, which went seven times platinum. In 2012, Bruno himself returned to the top of the Hot 100 with the lead single off his sophomore album, Unorthodox Jukebox, the diamond-certified Locked Out of Heaven. Heaven proved to be a critical moment in the broad Bruno Mars project, a studious and note-perfect homage to Message in a Bottle era police hits, right down to its jittery new wave reggae rock groove and vocal ticks so indebted to Sting's signature style that they seem designed to draw attention to that mimicry. The song began a trend in Bruno's oeuvre in which clocking the specific source material became a critical part of absorbing his hits. Released in December of 2012, Unorthodox Jukebox, a collection of songs that built on Heaven's Spot the Reference appeal, marked Bruno's first number one album and continued his commercial fortunes. 
It produced five platinum singles, including the chart-topping piano ballad When I Was Your Man, and an additional top five, the off-the-wall disco pastiche Treasure. In 2014, Bruno earned a rare early career slot headlining the Super Bowl and released his biggest hit yet, a starring feature on Mark Ronson's unrelentingly popular Uptown Funk, a painstaking and pretty astonishingly exacting recreation of Morris Day-style Minneapolis funk. The song was a cultural sensation, topping the Hot 100 for 14 consecutive weeks, making it one of the longest-running number ones of the decade and eventually going 11 times platinum. From there, Bruno continued to drill even further and with increasingly specific detail into assiduously thorough replicas of Pop's past. His third album, 2016's 24 Karat Magic, was his best yet. Here, Bruno honed in specifically and sometimes perhaps borderline problematically on the history of black pop and soul music, touching on everything from seminal late 70s era early hip hop on the top five lead single and title track, to new edition era R&B boy band sex jams on Versace on the floor, to James Brown's spare staccato funk on Perm and thriller era MJ on the glorious shimmering post-disco gem Chunky. The second single, the slinky Jodeci-esque That's What I Like was another diamond certified number one, while the exuberant new jack swing of the Cardi B assisted finesse hit the top five. 24 Karat Magic cleaned up at the 2018 Grammys, winning seven awards, including Album of the Year. After a brief reprieve from the spotlight, Bruno returned to the top of the charts in 2021, this time partnering with Anderson Pack to create a Philly soul and Parliament Funkadelic nodding supergroup Silk Sonic. Their debut album, An Evening with Silk Sonic, continued Bruno's single-minded focus on refining his fastidious karaoke act, down to sourcing era-specific drum covers and microphones. Lead single, the number one peaking Leave the Door Open won Record of the Year and Song of the Year at the Grammys, making Bruno the second person in history to win those awards three times, following Paul Simon. The album went on to produce two more top 20 hits. Bruno Mars has sold over 130 million records worldwide. He was the first artist to receive six Diamond Certified songs in the US. He has three solo platinum albums and one platinum album as Silk Sonic. He has 20 platinum singles, 13 of which are top 10s and include eight number ones. He has 15 Grammy Awards, 13 Soul Train Music Awards, 11 American Music Awards, 9 BET Awards, 8 Billboard Music Awards, 1 Billboard Latin Music Award, 4 MTV VMA Awards, 3 MTV Europe Music Awards, 11 iHeartRadio Music Awards, 4 Brit Awards, 13 ASCAP Pop Music Awards, a Juno Award, a People's Choice Award, 5 Teen Choice Awards, and 7 NAACP Image Awards. Bruno has been named by Billboard as one of the greatest artists of all time. Here with me to try and unlock the mysteries and thrills of Bruno Mars is Stereo Gums Tom Bryan. Okay, I'm here once again with senior writer at Stereo Gum, Tom Bryan. Tom, welcome back to the show. What a pleasure. So good to be here. Always a pleasure to talk to you. So we're here today to talk about, I think, an artist that's, at least from what I can glean from reading your recent writing about him, because you've, in your number ones column, gotten to the early Bruno Mars era in the recent months. So you've been spending some time thinking about him. You also appeared on an episode of Chris Malamfi's podcast, The Bridge, talking about Bruno. So all of a sudden, you are the go-to guy for Bruno, I guess. I have no idea how this happened. This is so strange to me. It's like two podcasts that I like and listen to have me up to talk about Bruno Mars. Like I'm the Bruno Mars guy now. I'm like, I'm the world-renowned Bruno authority. 
I don't feel like that, but I appreciate it very much. Well, I think you're the type of person, and maybe this is getting a little bit into how the sausage is made. It's not interesting, but my favorite episodes of the show are when there's an artist that I'm somewhat ambivalent about, and then I get to talk to a very smart thinker about pop music generally, who also isn't necessarily a stan, but just has interesting thoughts on the person. That's my favorite type of episode, honestly. So that's right where we are right now. We're both approaching this from some sort of reverence, respect, but also a bit of confusion and ambivalence about a star that is a little bit hard to even classify, I think, as a pop star. The more that I spent time digging into his discography, preparing for this, I started to wonder, is Bruno Mars important as a figure in his music at all? Is Bruno Mars central to Bruno Mars's music in any meaningful way? Or is he just a curator of expertly made pastiche homage and nostalgia? Great questions. I'd like to sort of add another question to the mix, which is, does Bruno Mars have stands? Right. This is a big question. I'm sure he does, but he doesn't seem to generate passion the way that most of his peers do. Right. I feel like that's what pop music is now. It's these people who people feel these very, very tight, close parasocial relationships to. And Bruno Mars seems to exist completely outside of that. And what would Bruno Mars's Stan Army even be called? The distance in his music that, as much as the sort of retro pastiche elements, is interesting to me, and it makes him such an outlier, because everybody else is online all the time. You know every single detail of their lives. Whereas with Bruno, he has an Instagram account. I know that because I just looked for one. But he's not out there. He's not putting his own business out there. He's not necessarily writing songs about himself, mm. from what I can tell, or about his own concrete experiences. He's there. He's always out there. He's certainly culturally present, but he's never been a driver of conversation except for three months that Uptown Funk was inescapable. Right. I wonder if he represents an older model of pop consumption where it's broadly appealing, but never deeply engaging. Like my boyfriend, for instance, was just saying that his parents went to Vegas not to see Bruno Mars, but decided to see Bruno Mars. And it was the best show that they ever saw in their life. They loved it and they had a great time and it was so much fun because he is a classic entertainer in so many ways. And he has a lot of the tropes that would make a great Vegas show. And he has a lot of of good songs and a lot of songs that a lot of people know, but you're definitely right that it's hard to slot him in against sort of the way that pop stardom is modeled these days, which is as gets talked about ad nauseum throughout the pop thinking community is so much driven by authenticity or the performance of authenticity and of, as you mentioned, the parasocial relationship between artists and their fans, everything emblematic in the Taylor Swiftian model of contemporary pop stardom. So that part of it is very interesting to me. But the other part of it that's interesting to me is these questions of homage in his music. Because going back through this music, he's always been a very, quote unquote, classically excellent, down the middle pop song craftsman. That was clear from the beginning. But as the career has gone on, really, you can track it album to album, project to project. He has gotten more and more engaged with zeroing in either song to song or as the albums came out, album to album on a specific mode, era, micro movement in pop, soul, R&B history. And then the project seems to be about meticulously recreating it, meticulously to the point where when you get to the Silk Sonic album, that's his most recent work in 2021, it was about finding the drum or the drum cover that was the same one that Parliament Funkadelic used or whatever it was. 
And the thing that started to register for me, and a lot of that music, again, is music that I really like, is this sort of borderline thing where I'm like, is this even pop music anymore? There was a moment listening to 24 Karat Magic and to the Silk Sonic album where I was like, what is the difference between this and Dick in a Box or something like that? <laughs> there's this feeling of because there's so little of what we traditionally expect from a pop star in terms of providing their force of personality and telling their own story through their music, even if they are using the trappings of stylistic overtures to past genres and eras, this has so little of that going on. And the only thing that really clocks as any personality in the music is this sort of comedic winking or friendly jibing at these tropes that almost makes it border on parody to me. Right. The line between parody and pastiche can be so thin. Yeah. And there's a sense of fun baked into Bruno's music. For sure. Which is one of the things that I appreciate the most about it. But that fun can become overbearing sometimes. Yes. To the point where he either seems like a high level comedian or perhaps a cruise ship entertainer. Yeah. Of the <laughs> highest possible level. Absolutely. The world's best cruise ship entertainer who also like writes songs that <laughs> will be performed by other cruise ship entertainers. Right. One of the main driving thematic forces in the music is kind of horniness, but the horniness doesn't actually clock as sexual. It's like a teen boy performing horniness and laughing at being horny. And then there's also this element of even when he is getting into performing emotion, like he does on some of his ballads, there's this feeling I think that maybe even you pointed out in your columns about him, where it's almost like he's performing other pop stars performance of emotional singing, as opposed to singing about anything that feels connected to reality for him. Right. He's just an expert gesturer at what pop stars do. And you know, that is not necessarily unique to Bruno. I mean, one thing I thought about was what was Michael Jackson doing on I'll Be There, for instance? There's no way that Michael Jackson at age eight or whatever he's saying that song actually knew what the fuck he was singing about. Of course. And yet he was able to convey a massive range of emotion by, I guess, being an expert mimic of stars that he looked up to and obviously having just some sort of supernatural connection to singing and emotion and whatever. But yeah, I think that that's not necessarily something Bruno is the only person that does, but I feel like he's unique in that it's all that he does, I guess is what I'm saying. Throughout his whole discography, it's hard to find anything other than some form of mimicry. Right. As opposed to actual thrust of personality. And I don't know if I can think of another pop star in history that I can say that about, where there just feels like there is no force of personality that is driving this. It's a full on, as you said, super high level, incredibly entertaining, often quite fun to listen to, cruise act. Right. So I was trying to think about this. Every pop star works in pastiche to some extent. Nobody's inventing these sounds. We were talking about Olivia Rodrigo on Patreon a couple of weeks ago. Right. And Olivia Rodrigo pulls from all these different things and smushes them all together in interesting ways, which is also what Bruno Mars does. But the difference is that everything that Bruno does feels like it has quotation marks around it, which is not really the case with a lot of other pop stars. And even if they are going in doing the quotation mark thing, they are finding ways to make you think that they're as emotionally genuine as possible and whether or not they even wrote their songs. And Bruno doesn't seem to have any interest in that, which is almost refreshing on some level. Mm -hmm. But I find, I don't know if you have this experience as a listener to him, but I find myself having to remind myself 
to release into it. There's this part of my brain that's almost like an alarm bell's going off and I'm like, there's a trick being pulled here that I don't feel is totally clean somehow and I want to kind of judge it. And then once I decide to stop judging it, I have a great time, but I have a hard time sometimes releasing into that with the music. That'll happen to me when I'm listening to individual songs. Right. The song will start and I'll be like, let me roll my eyes in the back of my head because I know exactly what he's doing. Yes. And then by the time it hits the third chorus, I'm fully on board. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yes, you nailed it, buddy. Yes, 100%. I was trying to think of historic comparison points. And this is going to sound weird, but the closest thing that I could think of was Neil Diamond. <laughs> Honestly, couldn't think of anything better than Neil Diamond. It's true. He starts out as a songwriter for other people, a <laughs> successful pop songwriter. And then he finds this lane in the mainstream where nobody has to take him seriously. Right. He can pack arenas forever. He can wear the most gaudy, loud outfits. And thousands upon thousands of retirees will just be like, yes, you hit it. Yeah, that's so true. And I'm not deep enough into Neil Diamond to know. I'm sure there's plenty of little subtle nuances in his work that I don't know enough about, but I think Uptown Funk could hit the way Sweet Caroline hits in 40 years or whatever, you know? For sure, for sure. Absolutely. They're both absolute wedding classics. Mm -hmm. When I'm reaching into my wedding crate, both those songs are glaring red to me every single wedding. The person that I thought of as having kinship to Bruno Mars, but also highlighting the emptiness of Bruno Mars and someone that he is connected to via Mark Ronson is Amy Winehouse. I mean, somebody that also meticulously recreated past sounds but completely unlike Bruno, brought so much pathos and personality and originality to the music that made it not just feel like some sort of cover band. You don't listen to Back to Black and just think she's doing covers of Motown or covers of Holland Dozier Holland or whatever. That's Amy Winehouse music. Whereas with Bruno, I don't know if this is Bruno Mars music. This is music that's amazing that Bruno Mars is curating for me, but maybe one of the main acts of fun besides just being very well done and fun music is playing Spot the Reference. Is the number one fun thing with Bruno Mars. I was having a great time going through this music and also, God bless him, I know we talked about this off mic, but God God bless this man's brevity and editing ability. I mean, pop stars could really learn a lot. This man has released three solo albums and they are all under 40 minutes and not a waste of space on any. And we'll talk about what's successful and what's not, but it was very fun to me to indulge in this music and really spend time thinking about it all without feeling like I had 10,000 things to get through. He's a great editor, but I think that there is this feeling of emptiness at the center of it that's an interesting thing to grapple with and kind of makes him stand out but makes his music more complex to think about than it is as actual music which is a fun activity i guess for this podcast totally with that all in mind let's get some broad background on bruno because even more so than some other pop stars bruno's upbringing informs a lot of what we're talking about very directly so yeah. what are the things we need to know about bruno mars's backstory that feel relevant to understanding everything that we're getting into here he's peter jean hernandez he comes from Honolulu, Hawaii. He's one of these people who you can't tell what race they are looking at them. So everyone Googles what their racial makeup is. And with him, it's Pacific Islander, Jewish, and Puerto Rican. The Paula Abdul of it all. Right, exactly. The Vin Diesel. Yes, the Vin Diesel. <laughs> yeah. And so he grew up as a performer in his parents' hotel entertainment act. He was an Elvis impersonator early on, and that's the sort of mythic backstory. He's in the movie Honeymoon in Vegas as mm -hmm. a six-year-old Elvis impersonator, and that is such a bewitching, fascinating 24 seconds of film. It is. Take 
you can really see in this little kid who's out here performing his heart out, inhabiting a different cultural character. Mm. The cliche about the Beatles is they learned to be great playing in bars in Hamburg all night. Right. And this guy's entire childhood was Hamburg. Right. He just was <laughs> performing constantly again and again for his entire life. Mm. It's not like Michael Jackson, where he was out in public, globally famous by the time he was 11. Right. He was doing this for tourists on vacation. It's an important distinction, linking back to what we were just talking about. Who his audience was there yeah. is relevant to the kind of musician that he becomes. And I think that informs a lot about his songwriting, because in performing all these classic old songs, he had to internalize their architecture, their gestures, the things that they're going for. These songs had to kind of become part of his DNA. Mm. And the performance styles as well. He's a very, very showy, kind of handy performer and is expert at that. You watch him do the thing where he does the splits and then spins on his way back up. It's awesome. It looks great. But it's not like when Prince does it where it's like, oh, I'm watching Prince express something when he does the splits and twirls on his way back up. It's like, oh, I'm doing what Prince did. Right. So he does the Elvis act. He was a Michael Jackson impersonator for a little while. says that his parents broke up and his dad, I guess, went broke mm. at some point. So he was scraping pennies together and eventually moves to Los Angeles, tries to make it as an artist first. He briefly signs to Motown, which had to be very exciting to him. Doesn't release anything. Yeah, right. Oh, also, <laughs> the name Bruno, he got as a nickname as a kid because he looked like Bruno San Martino, the pro wrestler from the 70s. Oh my God. Which I love. Love that. He had curly hair and his dad's from New York, yeah. which is where Bruno San Martino was as a fan of professional wrestling. I think that's awesome. Mm -hmm. I wish there was a pop star named Stone Cold Steve Pluto now. <laughs> Honestly, it feels inevitable at some point. I can't wait. And Mars was related to him being supernaturally talented. The way I saw it was he felt like an alien when he got to LA. Right. And also people wanted him to make Latin pop mm. and he didn't want to do that. He's like a quarter Latin or something. And this is around the early 2000s, right? Yeah, yeah. And I don't think he's ever even recorded in Spanish. Mm-mm. Right? Not to my knowledge, which honestly, given the current centrality of Latin pop music, I wonder what the Bruno Mars 2024 album could sound like. You could see it happening. Yeah, you could. I truly have no idea what the next Bruno Mars album is going to sound like. Mm -hmm. I guess we'll get to all that. Yes, yes. And he struggles, doesn't release anything until he meets up with a couple of other people who were also trying to make it and they start writing songs together. They call themselves the Smeezingtons, which is- Your favorite name, yes. I hate it so much. I just hate saying it. I hate looking at it. I don't know why you would choose that. Do you know if there's a story there? I don't know the story, but I do feel like the just inherent forward cheeseballness of it, the goofy humor of it just feels right to me when I think about Bruno Mars, especially when I think about pre the Bruno Mars that got into the pimp soul era of music that we've been in with him for the last whatever five to seven years when i think about early bruno mars and when we're going to talk about his early music in a second the level of just unabashed cornballness makes that name feel congruous to me but i agree aggressively cheesy and icky yeah he's writing a bunch of songs for a bunch of different artists the placements gradually get more and more notable and the rest of the smeezingtons are involved in co-writing right round by flow rider which is a gigantic hit
We talk about the quotation heavy aspect of Bruno's thing, the pastiche of it. Yes. I feel like Right Round is the worst possible example of that. It's a real garbage song. It's so cynical. It's just, oh yeah, we'll take a song that everybody knows and then we'll turn it into another song that everybody knows, except now it's horny and now it has a Dr. Luke beat on it. It's not something that I like. Yeah, I don't like Right Round, but I find Right Round to be an interesting fulcrum point for pop at a certain moment. It comes up weirdly a lot on episodes. It's come up in the Kesha episode. It's come up in various discussions of Dr. Luke, which run through numerous episodes of this show. So I think it's interesting as a moment because it exists somehow right at the moment where the pop rock aesthetic of Dr. Luke, i.e. his Kelly Clarkson and Pink moment shifts into the Katy Perry and post-Katy Perry electropop era of Dr. Luke, which also reflects a broader change in pop that happens in this exact era. I mean, Right Round happens to come out right as Lady Gaga is taking off, right as all of these DJ producers are starting to get traction, right as EDM is beginning to create a vice grip on American pop radio. So there is this interesting moment, and then it's the fact that it's kind of a moment where Dr. Luke also strikes out on his own separate from Max Martin. It's a moment where Kesha enters the public consciousness, who is obviously an incredibly important pop star of this moment. And then, of course, it's fascinating that it's also a moment where Bruno Mars, who, frankly, in his early music, I think acts a lot as counter-programming to EDM, also finds his big breakthrough. And then, of course, Flo Rider is such an interesting novelty reflection of 2008 or 2009, such an interesting artist that had, like, nine hits in the span of two or three years and then just sort of ceased to matter. And zero fans. Yeah, and like zero fans. So I think Right Round is horrible, but very interesting and weirdly comes up a lot. And I also think it's an interesting window into Bruno attempting to sort of settle on what he's going to do because it's that in America, but then there's this Sugar Babes hit, Get Sexy, that the Smeezingtons write in the same year that also is a number two hit over there that interpolates I'm Too Sexy by Right Said Fred. So both of Bruno Mars's initial breakthrough top line songs are openly relying on the hooks of other past hits. That feels important to me in terms of how Bruno Mars thinks about pop music. He is not an innovator. Although these songs are not nearly the meticulous homages that his music is going to become. They're much more craven and hollow and empty and tinny and whatever. They still do reflect to me this almost maniacal focus and lack of desire to do anything forward thinking. It's very much how can I draw on the past and create something undeniable based on pop's history. Right. It's interesting that he hasn't really worked with samples and interpolations since then. Right. Because the Sugar Babe song doesn't sound like Right said Fred. Right. And Right Round doesn't sound like Dead or Alive. They just hack the hooks out of there and put them to work in the most pedestrian early 2000s dance pop sounds. 100%. And I think the more interesting and informative Bruno Mars right of this period is the CeeLo song Fuck You, which is a very explicit 60s, 70s soul or Motown sounding record that feels very informative to how Bruno Mars will like approach his own music coming into this first era. Right. Explicit in several ways. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, the explicitness of it is probably the most interesting thing about that song. Yeah. 
that song, I feel like it got number one or number two in Paz and Jop that year. Yes. That's a song that is widely loved. People loved that fucking song. Yeah. That song bites. It doesn't suck. It's fine. This is how I feel about sort of my least favorite Bruno Mars songs is that they're fine. Yes, right. But it's so cutesy and it's so gimmicky. Yes. I think it fired up about it. I agree. And also, I think CeeLo has been on an interesting trajectory of being kind of a cool guy to being sort of reviled. And that has tainted my memories of Fuck You. And also, I think Fuck You was arriving. I bring up Amy Winehouse again, but there was this moment starting with Back to Black that sort of bled into Adele and Duffy and all of these people that were recreating Motown sounds. And that was a big micro movement in pop at the time that Fuck You felt like a commercial apex yes. in the United States at least. It was just a moment where Bruno Mars spotted or refined that trend and created in a way that only Bruno Mars could the most supermarket ready version of that trend and gave that to CeeLo. And it feels informative because I think that is an act that Bruno Mars will refine through his own work as it comes out. But I think maybe one of the more interesting things about this is Bruno Mars's actual breakthrough as a star, which comes later that same year, are on a pair of songs that don't totally to me feel like they're homages or looking backwards to pop history they sound almost aggressively 2009 i think you even write about this a little bit about bruno mars's music in general in this time period but you can't even describe it as anything other than just pop there's no real identifying marker so i'm talking about the bob song nothing on you and the travi mccoy song billionaire both of which feature hooks by bruno mars and are both hits around the same time what is your feeling on these songs and how do they present bruno to us as an artist for the first time in 2009. Okay, so the songs are bad, and they present him <laughs> as a guy in a hat. Bruno Mars's whole persona at that time was, here's this guy in this hat. The songs, they fucking suck. Mm -hmm. They are god-awful trash. So I was briefly excited about being... I bought into the like blog rap. That's hard to remember, but sure. I respect you enough to take that seriously for a second. Look, hasn't aged well. It turned out that B.O.B. was extremely desperate and excited to sell out. He couldn't <laughs> wait to do it. And then he couldn't wait to torch whatever he got from selling out by being a flatter weirdo. Fascinating trajectory on that guy. But so Bruno Mars, you know, his first big hits were all with rappers. He's working in conversation with the pop music of the time, which I don't think he really does anymore. They're all laser-targeted radio. They're aggressively empty. Like, Beautiful Girls is about how, oh, there's all these beautiful girls, but I like you. Billionaire is about, I want to be a billionaire, which is very of its moment. Right. I don't think a pop star could sing about wanting to be a billionaire. Now you'd want to storm the Bastille when you heard that. And it's the fucking guy from Gym <laughs> Class Heroes. I want to be a billionaire so fucking bad. Buy all of the things I never had. Buy everything. I want to be on the cover of Forbes magazine. Smiling next to Oprah and the Queen. What up, Oprah? <laughs> We're in the post-Bernie Sanders era of <laughs> stardom. Yeah, yeah. The last things I'm going to say about Nothing On You that struck me, because I concur with you, both of these songs are awful. And I remember them coming out, and I remember despising them at the time. I just remember being like, this is the worst thing that pop does. It's just so scientifically engineered and cynical. And the thing that really strikes me about both of these songs is 
how in a mad scientist way I picture Bruno Mars on these picking topics and a persona that feel the most broadly accessible. The nice guy who sees a girl for who she is when the rest of the world can't. I mean, that's the thing that a lot of men would like to see themselves as in a broad sense, something women would like men to be for them and just completely comfortably inhabiting the most basic unnuanced version of that CVS music of the highest order. Yeah. And then billionaire, again, it's like, how can I pick a persona point of view topic that feels the most relatable? And of course, this is emerging to us in the midst of the recession. I think that's worth noting. So there is this feeling of aspirational wealth or that everyone's suffering financially and wouldn't it be nice to not be? It has this almost depression era vibe to it. It's wearing the money or something. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> it's literally wearing the money for its time. Or hey, big spender or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing that I feel is notable about these songs is regardless of how much of a sort of intangible presence he is or opaque person, he eats the other two people on these songs alive. Yes. The other people on these songs are meaningless. It's so funny. The hooks of these songs are instantaneously memorable to me when I see the song title, but listening to Billionaire in particular, I completely had blacked out, I think for my own well-being and health, Travis McCoy's parts of these songs. Yeah. He is 100% the centerpiece of these songs where he is featured. That felt important to note. Absolutely. He's done a bunch of rap features over the years, and that usually is what happens, which is interesting. He was involved in producing a lot of the tracks, and there's no production aesthetic to anything. The beats are just utterly ignorable. There's no Bruno Mars sound in terms of what he brings to rap music. It's just whenever a rapper wants to make the most anodyne pop song that they can, he's the guy they go to. And I think these songs also provide an interesting jumping off point to discuss his debut album because they present two of the modes that this album operates in aesthetically, which are, as you said, anodyne, unclassifiable, capital pop nothingness. Mm -hmm. Precision made pop that has no other identifying qualities to it. And then this, what I can only describe as sub Jack Johnson, Hawaii, chill guy, reggae vibes. That's the other thing I think feels notable about both Nothing On You and Billionaires because in 2010, Bruno drops his debut album, Doo-Wops and Hooligans. And if I had to identify two overarching modes and there are other things happening on that album, those are two modes that as Bruno searches for what he does as a pop star are the initial things that he seems to latch on to. So can you Talk to me a little bit about doo-wops and hooligans more broadly. Obviously, we need to talk about Just the Way You Are and Grenade. What is this record to you? And how do you think about this as Bruno's initial foray as a solo artist? So until I started writing the column that I write, which if any listeners are unfamiliar, I write this column called The Number Ones, where I'm reviewing every song that was ever number one on the Billboard Top 100 in the charts history. And I've done more than a thousand of them now. And I'm <laughs> just getting into the Bruno Mars era. So yes. I've done the deep dives of the doo-wops and hooligans songs. Do Wops and Wooligans is a gigantically successful album that has never meant anything to me. Mm -hmm. It was just kind of there. And I think Bruno makes music for passive consumption, mm. which is not a thing that any other pop star does right now. Mm. It just becomes this ambient part of the air, these songs that he does. And if you look at what he says about the album title, Do Wops and Wooligans, it's like, oh yeah, the Do Wops are the pretty songs that I write for the girls. And then the Wooligans are the rowdy, which is like, do 
doo-wop it's a genre of music there's not multiple doo-wops what are you talking about shut up but whatever it worked and there's some songs on doo-wops and hooligans that are some of the worst songs i've ever heard in my life and then there are some songs that are the kind of songs where you hear them in a cbs 50 times and they mean nothing to you and then one day you turn on your car ignition and they come on the radio and you're like this chorus is incredible so his first single as a solo artist is also his first number one hit and that's just the way you are right that's a song where i could forget about it completely if i'm not actively listening to it mm -hmm. and then the chorus hits i'll get goosebumps when i see The chorus on that song is unbelievable. He just suddenly soars. You can hear exactly what he's doing. You can hear exactly the persona he's trying to put forward. It's exactly what you were saying, where he's the nice guy who notices the things that are great about this woman that she doesn't necessarily notice about themselves. I don't know if he's writing for personal experience. I'm thinking probably not. But when that chorus hits, it transcends all of that. Yes. The guy is such a scientist that he can do this he can just flip something over and you're just like, oh my God, this is what music can do. This is amazing. Yes, and it's that thing of capturing the utter simplicity and economical nature of writing a pop song that makes it seem like it just poured out of your mouth and is the most easily relatable thing of all time, but requires so much craftsmanship behind the scenes. That's what I think of when I think of a song like Just The Way You Are. This is the work of somebody that approaches pop, as you mentioned, just like an absolute scientist. You pointed out in your number ones column about this song, Song, the way that he sings the verses in third person. And then mutates into second person on the chorus. And so it's almost like it's creating this feeling subconsciously that he's turning around and looking at you. which I thought was just a brilliant reflection of part of this song's magic, creating the sense of intimacy with the star in a very subtle and brilliant songwriting turn. And the chorus, I think, like a lot of these songs do on this record, almost feels like they're tailor-made for the epic scene in some sort of generic rom-com. There's this cinematic sweeping vibe to the way that the chorus hits you that you're just waiting for Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams to turn around and look at each other and run through the rain and kiss. Absolutely. He's almost making songs for that moment. And it is that thing I think we were sort of getting at earlier where there's a part of me when I'm listening to the song that's like, I fucking hate this song. It's so cynical. It's so broad and lacking in any idiosyncrasy and nuance and interest and who is this person at the center of this? And also I happen to despise songs that frame heterosexual relationships as good because the guy sees the girl as fully human. I hate that. And then if I flip my brain off and just sort of give myself over to it, of course, the sweep of this thing is undeniable. You can't resist it. It's this weird feeling of, I feel like I'm being taken advantage of by him. He's pulling a fast one on me or something like that, but maybe that's okay. I don't know. It honestly gives me a headache sometimes. I shouldn't be thinking this hard about this fucking music, but it makes me. That's what it's supposed to do. Yeah, right. It's supposed to manipulate you. That's <laughs> what pop music is. And I think he understands that at a certain point. The thing that I respect the most about the song 
and about Bruno Mars in general is that I don't know if he's singing about himself and that's fine because the way he makes it, it's like, I'm not the star of this song. You, the person listening to this, are the star of the song. Right. And the song is the star of the song. I'll just step to the side. I'm just channeling this thing. We'll talk about the Super Bowl performance, I'm sure. Yeah. So he ends his Super Bowl halftime show with Just the Way You Are. And there's these shots of him singing that chorus, superimposed against fireworks. Yeah. Somebody should get a raise for that. Somebody did a very good job on that. That chorus is like fireworks going off in your head. A hundred percent. I think that's such an interesting point about the unknowability and that how much that doesn't matter because the other big number one hit is Grenade, in which he presents you with the same level of high relatability, but entirely different POV. He's almost giving you little moods that you can relate to because in Grenade, he's more sad sack martyr who is getting taken advantage of by women. I guess he's the good guy in both of these scenarios. Maybe that's the thing that connects them to each other. But in that song, it's an entirely different POV on relationships where women are dangerous and his heart gets stomped on and he's willing to do anything for a woman and you taxonomize this very well piece, but the sort of melodramatic things he will do for a woman, step on a grenade, jump in front of a train, blow out his brains, whatever the fuck it is. It would be such a joke if he didn't deliver it so sincerely. Yeah. That's what can be so aggravating about him and also so yeah. magical about him. Yeah. This shit would sound so stupid if you didn't put your entire soul into selling it. And when you listen to it, you know you're being sold something. Right. But at a certain point, you're just like, God damn, you're really good at selling this thing. The exaggerations on Grenade are so ridiculous. In the video, he literally gets hit by a train on purpose. Pulls his <laughs> piano onto some train tracks and gets hit by a train. It's so dumb, but he just makes it work. That song soars. Grenade is so good. I think where I net out on these two songs is I ultimately hate Just The Way You Are and I fucking love Grenade. <laughs> but they're so similar. There's an equal level of sincerity on both songs. They're very similar, but I like the slight edge and darkness of Grenade. It gives me a little bit more to wrap my head around where the saccharine sweetness of just the way you are. Again, it depends on the mood. It depends on how willing I am to let it go and just go there with it. But just the way you are, I always just found so sugary sweet. I think Grenade, there's some... <laughs> Describing Bruno Mars like this having edge is obviously getting into weird territory. And no matter what, he's going to sell it. It also comes back to that thing that's a little bit hard to understand where it's like, yes, he sells it with his whole soul, but yet there is also this feeling that is there a soul or is he imitating selling something with its own soul? That's the thing that makes it all complex to me because he does not move me. I don't feel moved by Bruno Mars. These songs can sometimes move me and we'll talk about the song that I find Bruno the most authentic and moving on in a later segment of this episode. But there's a way in which these songs I know are meant to give big emotions, but I feel that he's imitating emotions and that can bug me sometimes on these songs. It's hard. All right, I want to talk about two things related to this. One is 
I'm interested in the way that these songs worked as counter-programming to EDM. Yes. In a way, these are the most broad, down-the-middle, pop-sounding songs you could ever come up with. And yet, they were sort of out of step with what else was happening in 2010. How do you think about these songs in the context of the broader pop movement of this moment? Yeah, it's funny. It's like they were out of step, but they weren't. Because Bruno, it's funny to think that he co-writes Right Ground and then he never works with Dr. Luke again. But there's a little bit of Dr. Luke, especially on this first album, in all these songs. Mm. In the sense of what? The melodic precision seems very of its moment. Right. And the broad sloganeering is not so far away from Katy Perry or whatever. Right. It's not EDM, but you can almost imagine a ghost 4-4 thump on Just The Way You Are. All these songs have remixes. There's a Skrillex remix of Just The Way You Are. Don't look it up. It's not good. Oh my god. But it exists. And it's in that way, they're not a radical break from the EDM stuff, but they're also not EDM. And there's no right. screaming, squealing synth noises on them or anything. And they're not dance songs, really. Right. It's music that's intended to soothe at a time when most pop music was intended to blast you in the face and you in your lap and yell in your ear. Do Molly too. Yeah, exactly. Nobody's doing any Molly to Bruno Mars. <laughs> Adult contemporary radio was like, thank God this guy has come along. Mm. We finally got something new that we can play the living hell out of. And it's also kind of interesting that Bruno Mars comes along like a year or two before Adele really blows up. There's some similarities between Bruno Mars and Adele. They've worked together for one thing. He produced one of the tracks on 25, I think, or co-wrote it or something. Yes, All I Ask. Yeah, which just sounds like an Adele song. Hold me like a more than just a friend. Give me a memory I But the difference being, first off, that Adele's not overtly trying to mimic anyone, but also with Adele, you get the sense that if I don't sing this, my heart's going to explode. And that is never, ever, ever <laughs> a feeling you get from Bruno Mars. No, and also Adele's whole shtick is I reveal the ins and outs of my very specific heartbreak. That's her whole musical project. That is certainly not Bruno's, but they definitely share their interest in homaging soul music of the past in particular. It feels like it exists out of time and it could have come along at any point. And I'm looking at this week's Billboard 200 right now, and Doo-Wops and Hooligans is on there. Yeah. It is the number 123 album in America this week, and it is its week number 643. I mean, that is mentally insane for many reasons. A, as you brought up in your column, it's not like it has seven number one songs. I mean, you have these two songs, you have the Lazy Song, which may be one of my least favorite songs of the century. I want to spit my teeth out at that song. I... Hate this song so much. I would like to hit this song in the face with a two by four if I could. I'm reviolate so completely. It's the most cutesy, the most bullshit. Thank God this like period of American life is over where this <laughs> dinky dink ukulele shit is dead. Yeah, it's run off from the Israel comma koala cover of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. That's what I kept thinking of. That was on every soundtrack to everything. Sure, yeah, which is also Hawaiian. Ooh. 
Jack Johnson, also from Hawaii. Yes. Oh. There's like a bunch of late reggae songs on Two Wops and Hooligans, which is not an album with a lot of songs on it. And I dislike all of them. The song Count On Me. Ugh. My son had to sing that in elementary school music class. It's basically children's music for unimaginative teachers to like teach their kids. No shots to Mr. B. He seems like a nice guy. <laughs> you can't count on Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, overall, I really do not like this album. Just The Way You Are and Grenade are clearly the best songs on this record by a mile. I mean, as you mentioned, there's a big slew of reggae songs. I find him either unconvincing or irritating in that mode. And then there's so many irritating songs that were like made for weddings or something like that. The song Marry Me is another one that just makes me want to blow my brains out. It's like every basic bitch wedding, as if he went into the studio and he was like, how can I soundtrack photo slideshows of weddings for the rest of time. I'm gonna make a song that is for that. Is it the look in your eyes? Or is it this dancing juice? Who cares, baby? I think I wanna marry you. I can't think of any less interesting or appealing version of a pop song to me than that type of thing. And that's what that is to me. I think the other song that feels worth noting here, because I feel like it's maybe the number one window into the future of Bruno Mars music, is the song Run Away Baby, which is kind of like a 60s soul meets 50s, 60s rock kind of pastiche song that gestures at a general retroness that I feel like is not a huge focus of this album, but becomes an incredibly important focus of Bruno's music moving forward. There's a little sped up Curtis Mayfield vibes. There's a little James Brown. There's a little Little Richard. There's a little Miserloo. There's a little Jacksons. I felt like that was maybe the most important song in thinking about where the project of Bruno Mars music will go moving forward on this album. That song kind of hits for me. I think that was pretty good. The energy of the pastiche, the willingness to launch himself into it wholeheartedly, I think is fun. It's like the Stray Cats or something. 100%. I'm going to inhabit these cliches and have as much fun with them as I can. It's funny. I never hated doo-wops and hooligans i had to listen to the album to write the column a bunch of times and it was always like compared to a lot of the other albums from artists who had number one songs in that era it's like oh this is short and i can ignore it so i guess i'm not mad at it mm -hmm. but i listened to the whole bruno discography a bunch of the times getting ready for this yeah and i could always not wait for doo-wops and hooligans to end so i could get to the other stuff i agree i mean everything else besides this album i like much of or increasingly like there's just something about the persona that he strikes on this i think the fact that it isn't this sort of expert recreation of past sounds makes it boring to me not just boring but kind of brings out the parts of him that I dislike, which are, as you mentioned, the cutesiness, the sort of teen boy puerile horniness. That stuff gets consumed or sort of refracted through these incredibly intricate, weirdly fascinating and beautiful recreations of past music that make me so much more interested in what's happening on his later work. But I feel like without that here, I think it's what you said. There's a kid's boppiness to this music. Kind of like this music is for 12 year olds. I really hate the sort of, I'm going to get on the couch and put my hands in my pants that whole pov that song it's 
Anybody who ever owned a G. Lovett special sauce record should just not be allowed to make pop music. You get that out of here. And anyone who's attempting to bring Jack Johnson's ethos forward. Is that ever going to come back? Is there going to be a Jack Johnson nostalgia moment? God, I fucking hope not. God, I hated Jack Johnson at the moment, and there was no reason I needed to hear Bruno Mars do Jack Johnson. Uh, I'm going to kick my feet up, then stare at the fan. Turn the TV on, throw my hand in my pants. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. So, okay, as Tom mentioned, this record is a massive success. Two number one songs, Lazy Song goes number five. It is still on the charts to this very fucking day, almost 15 years later. So I think that quantifies it as an unmitigated success. I think interestingly though, and in a way that illustrates Bruno's general MO, he never felt to me in that time having lived through this, it wasn't like he was having the emergence of a Lady Gaga or even a Kesha or even these kind of big force of personality pop stars that dominated this moment. Rihanna, Katie, even though he was maybe bigger than all of them, this album is one of the most successful albums that came out at that time. I just remember as someone that lived through it, him never quite feeling like he was as big as them to me. Does that how you remember it? That absolutely tracks. He was omnipresent, especially when he was doing a ton of rap features. He was just always around, and he was on a bunch of songs that were hits shortly after the album. But yeah, it's funny. There's a GQ story from, I don't remember when exactly, but I guess right when Just The Way You Are was blowing up, he got arrested for cocaine possession at the Hard Rock Hotel in Las Vegas. Right. And that seemed to really, really shake him. Yes. It seems like such a baby thing compared to everything else that pop stars get up to. Totally. And also, I wrote this, Bruno Mars doesn't have much of a persona, but I don't get the impression that he hates cocaine. No. <laughs> that came into the party with some coke, he would be like, get that away from me and lecture you about your life choices. But he immediately seemed to get this idea that if I party too hard in public, and if I put too much of myself out there, I will be at risk. And I think a lot of the decisions that he has made since then have worked to minimize that risk of exposure. Certainly, he's not trying to move culture in any way. He's not trying to take any stands. Or make himself important in any sort of meaningful way, or make his narrative important in any way that he would have to interface with it in his music. I mean, that feels imperative to the Bruno Mars project, to almost remove himself as a present. Yeah, so his origin story is cool and fascinating, the Elvis impersonator thing, but I have no idea what Bruno Mars is like in his adult life. No clue. I don't know who he's dating. I don't know what he likes to eat. I don't know what his favorite movies are. I don't know any of that stuff. Mm -mm. And he almost pointedly has not put any of that out there. The fact that the group Silk Sonic exists is like, oh, I guess he likes Anderson Pack. Oh, that's cool. That's one of the rare weakos. 
The only thing that I think I know about him is that he is a musical encyclopedia who sits and studies and in a savantish sort of way can sit and listen to a recording of something and know every single thing about it. See under the hood of pop history. He can hear a song, for instance, by the police to sort of set up our next segment and go, I'm going to figure out exactly how this works and I'm going to be able to recreate that meticulously. So in thinking about that, the lead single from Bruno Mars's second record is Locked Out of Heaven. This comes out in 2012. And this feels like a revelation, I think, in terms of what Bruno Mars's musical project will be moving forward. Talk to me about this song, what it sounds like, what it's about, and what it's referencing very specifically, because I feel like that feels important here. Right, so it's Message in the Bob. Yes. With tweaks. Sting is someone who has always been very, very willing to have his stuff licensed out for a price. Mm -hmm. And there's no Sting songwriting credit on Locked Out of Heaven, which makes me wonder if some sort of backroom deals went down. Or this is pre-blurred lines by one year, so maybe things were slightly less... It could be. But Sting famously snagged himself a songwriting credit on Money for Nothing by Dire Straits Mm. because he sang the I Want My MTV thing and made it sound like, Mm. don't stand so close to me. (laughs) This guy is an operator. I think he and Bruno Mars probably think in similar ways. Yes. So it's very, very, very much going for a police thing. Pretty successfully, I think. I think so too. I don't think it's a great song, Mm. but I'm also not that big a fan of the police. And from this point forward, the rule for me, at least with Bruno Mars, is the more I like the thing he's pastiching, the more I'm going to like the Bruno Mars song. Right. (laughs) That's so true. You know, what's interesting to me about this is it definitely feels like his most overt foray into that spot, the reference era of Bruno Mars music. This introduces Mark Ronson as a collaborator, which obviously is a kindred spirit. I mean, you clearly have somebody in Mark Ronson just looking at Back to Black alone, who also likes to look at past music and recreate it. I mean, that is something that's clearly integral to both what Bruno Mars and Mark Ronson do well. Yes. It makes complete sense why they're here. I think what's interesting about this song, and it becomes sort of less of a thing in future Bruno music, is there's no question that this is a overt homage to the police and is not trying to hide that in any way. It wants to show you that it is homaging the police. Yes, it shows its work. It shows its work, but it's very cleverly using elements of contemporary production to make that feel like it can appeal to young people as well. People who don't care about the police. Yeah, it doesn't sound dusty. It doesn't sound dusty and it uses very cleverly kind of an EDM ramp up into the chorus. It has this kind of thing that happens in the background. He knows exactly how to take something and give it the sheen of interest that will still make it interesting to a young audience who has no idea who the police are and isn't going to care about that. Like he's able to sort of see how these past styles could be made to feel appealing and shiny and glossy and modern just enough. Because there is a way that somebody could just be out there making police homages and that would not work as a mass appeal radio hit in 2012. There are subtle things that he does here. He does less and less as the project goes on and gets more and more sort of interested in just recreating. But this is definitely his best song to me to this 
point. The other thing that sort of gets brought into the mix is a sort of aggressive lasciviousness. There's an explicitness to this. The whole song is about really wanting to fuck somebody, but they're not letting you do it. And I think that that's something that seems to be yet another studied pop star trope that pervades this second record, which is called Unorthodox Jukebox, another title that is obviously referencing the fact that Bruno's going to be homaging various past pop styles on this album. And another real dog shit ass title. It's a very orthodox jukebox. Yeah, so there's nothing unorthodox about this album at all. But I think that if I had to point to one thing, it's another studied pop star trope that seems to permeate this album is I'm going to be a more sexually overt presence on these songs. But my question for you is, does that work for you on this album? And is he convincing as this lover man who beats his chest and is walking around fucking anything that walks? This is two different questions, right? So it's, does it work for me? Hell yeah. I think it's fun as hell. (laughs) Is it convincing? I don't know. Probably not. I get that that's what he wants to put out there. And that's a choice. This is where he stops being the stupid pork pie hat guy and becomes silk shirt gold chain guy. Yes. And I find the silk shirt gold chain guy to be more compelling. Way. And aspiring dirtbag. If not compelling, at least more fun to absorb. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah. I think if this Bruno got arrested for coat, he wouldn't think twice about it. Yes. I wonder also if that is... A studied pop star trope, of course, the pop star becoming a more sexual being is the oldest story in the book. Right, but Bruno wasn't like a child star. He didn't have some chasteness to get away from. Right, except that Doo-Wops and Hooligans is pretty chaste. It is a pretty chaste album. It's pretty kids boppy to me. You're right, but also I think that there was a presentation of him at the beginning that felt very kind of, this is your older brother clowning you or whatever. But the sexlessness wasn't a selling point. Like, it was when the Jonas Brothers were wearing purity rings was when he was out. True. So it was less of a leap for him, I think. What I was going to say about it, though, is that I wonder if he had the one and only public narrative thing that broke through in his whole career, which was this cocaine arrest. It's like Beyonce in the elevator. The one and only time we've ever gotten a true look at him. So he knew he had to get ahead of that narrative on this album. So, like, there is a lyric. Oh, he does sing about cocaine, yeah. Yeah, on Gorilla, he says, I got a body full of liquor and a cocaine cane ticker or something like that. So there is this understanding in that Machiavellian way that Bruno Mars approaches being a pop star that he's like, I got to address this. I got to say something about it because otherwise I wouldn't be being a good pop star if I didn't do that. Maybe that's where the whole thrust of this album being that beat my chest gorilla lover man vibe is reacting to on some level. Do you agree with that? And also, let's use that as a jumping off point to talk about what else is happening on this album and what works and what doesn't for you. I was going to save Gorilla for the end of the podcast when you're like, is there a song that is underrated? Yeah. I'll just talk about it now. That song is the dumbest thing <laughs> and it goes so far. Yeah. That's the ultimate Bruno Mars. I'm going to write a searing emotional power ballad about I want to do some fucking. I'm going to make it sound like it's a foreigner ballad in 1984, but it's going to be about check me out. I'm a gorilla. I love to fuck. That's (laughs) fucking hilarious. And he delivers it with such sincerity. Yes. It's just like, you motherfucker. It's so cartoonish. It's almost like a writing exercise, right? Like a challenge that he issued himself 
I'm going to write the most outlandish thing that I can possibly think of. We're going to be gorillas in the jungle fucking. And then I'm going to make it into a song that works. And he did. That shit is fun to me. I wrote in my notes, Disneyfied salaciousness. The silliness of it doesn't negate the salaciousness to me. I get the feeling listening to that song that Bruno Mars is a guy who loves to fuck. Right. It's a pose that rings truer than some of his, I'm a nice guy with women and I'm a... There's more believability to this than there is to some of the past guys as he's struck to me. Yeah. And then the album is just as studies as I think Two Up and Hooligans is, but it's much more successful to me. Yes. Agree. There's a reggae song on this one and it's exactly what I was talking about where it starts up and I'm like, oh, Jesus fucking Christ, mm -hmm. Bruno Mars doing another reggae song. But then that one is pulling from 80 dance hall and it's doing it very well and by the time it hits the second chorus yeah show me yes show me i'm like yeah all right i'm on board good job bruno you did it yeah you managed to avoid embarrassing yourself this time I thought about Peter Tosh, World of Reggae, and UB40, Musical Youth. Sure, yeah. I thought about Murder, She Wrote by Chaka Demos and Pliers. Yes, 100%. The tape echo effects. I think it's that honing of the precision of the homage that yep. starts to kind of come across here. It's why Doo-Ops and Hooligans is kind of an album that I don't really care for that much. I need that part of Bruno's music. I need that expertise in the homage for it to really function for me because otherwise it's just perfect anodyne pop music and I don't need that. It gives him an angle, I guess, because there's no angle otherwise. There's nothing happening really besides perfection, which is so boring. So once he's able to bring in the spot, the reference thing, I think it really does give this music interest that I just wouldn't have had otherwise. Yeah. So Locked Out of Heaven is a number one hit and then there's a another number one hit on this album and that's when i was your man yes and this song comes out a very short amount of time after someone like you by adele someone like you is the first time if i'm remembering this right that a number one song was ever just a voice in a piano and when i was your man is the second and it's right after so Bruno's playing spot the reference here with something that's baldly obvious and he's also going for sincerity on that one and he can't hold a candle to the way Adele sings that song. No. Adele sings that song and I want to explode with grief. Mm -hmm. And Bruno sings that song and I'm like, oh, this is a pretty nice song you got there, buddy. It's just not the same. I should have bought you flowers And held your hand Should have gave you all my hours When I had the chance Take you to everybody Cause all your It's a really good song, though. This is my favorite Bruno Mars ballad. Really? Yes, I love this song. You don't love this song? Talk more. I think it's fine. I actually find him more convincing on this ballad than I do on any of the other ones. There's a sense of rawness to the way he sings this song that I find different than some of the other times he gestures at having emotions. I have a really hard time understanding whether I'm being tricked, and that really bothers me a lot throughout Bruno Mars's music, but for some reason this song 
song moves me in a way that his other songs are gesturing at moving me and don't. And this song actually hits me. I really enjoy and resonate with the point of view that it strikes. I love the idea of re-interrogating your relationship through the past by seeing somebody with somebody new. That feeling is so resonant. I think that's such a smart way to write about this kind of heartbreak. I don't know whether maybe it's just something like personal for me, but it just hits me. I often find Bruno Mars songs are attempting to move me and they're so empty and he's so cynical and pulling so many tricks that I don't feel anything. And this song, I feel something from for whatever reason. Okay. It has not had that effect on me. Mm. We all know what he's doing. Yes. We can see that he's playing with these narratives. And there's so many songs that are about the same thing, like When You Were Mine or Always On My Mind or whatever. Yes. That hit me so much harder and it just doesn't do it for me with that one. Oh yeah. Let me be clear. We're talking in the context of Bruno I'm Mars's discography. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to make sure that we say that outright. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm saying in a batch of songs that have very little emotional resonance for me outside of fun, this is one of the only ones that has that for me. Again, maybe this is just the result of when this song hit for me in 2012. Maybe it's something to do with my own, but you know, things can happen that way. But there's something that I connect to on an emotional level about this song that I find I struggle with on other songs where I know Bruno Mars would like me to emotionally connect to what he's doing. Yeah. What about Treasure? We should spend a minute on the other hit Yeah, here. I think we have to, because that becomes the blueprint. Yes. Because Unorthodox Jukebox, he's like, look at me, I'm going to do every type of music. And then Treasure is like, I'm going to do fun, slick, 70s slash 80s funk pop. And then that's just what he does from that moment forward, different aspects of that. And I think Treasure is the beginning of that. The videos on this album, he visualizes the pastiche. The When I Was Your Man video looks like it's filmed in a studio in 1975. And the treasure video is going for a soul train thing. And then that becomes another aspect of his presentation going forward. Even the videos are quotations and pastiches. Yes, and I think two important things. One is a comment and one is a question that I want to ask you. One is, treasure feels important because I think also the pastiche and homage from here forward with Bruno is explicitly about black soul history. So on this album, you have the police, you have arena rock, you have allusions to just various forms of pop history that are not so focused. And when I was your man in a way, you could say is a Billy Joel, Elton John homage. I mean, there's a broadness to what he is exploring in terms of what he can homage on this album. As you mentioned, it's like an anything goes sort of vibe. And I think Treasure and its homages to disco and Chic and Sister Sledge and whatever feels like a moment also where the Bruno Mars project there's a honing of what the pastiche is as the project goes on he gets more precise in making the pastiche and he gets more precise in what the areas of interest are within the pastiche so like treasure feels very important to me because it's notably homaging a specific moment in black pop history i.e disco funk whatever michael jackson off the wall that feels like he then clicks into for the rest of his discography the whole thing becomes about that and my question 
question for you in terms of wrapping up our conversation about unorthodox jukebox. How does Bruno work for you as a visual artist? You've talked about his videos. We've touched briefly on his performance abilities. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I mean, is he sort of refracting that same sense of homage through the music videos? What is he like as a performer? How important is all of that to the success of this music in your mind? From there, we got to talk about the Super Bowl performance, right? Right. He does the Super Bowl and it's maybe the only time in history when somebody's done the Super Bowl halftime show when they're still on the way up. Yes. They haven't peaked yet. You could make the same argument for Beyonce. No. Beyonce had been making music for 15 years by the time she made the Super Bowl. Right. And she made better music after that. Yes. But not more culturally dominant music. No. Maybe. She made sense. Beyonce had been releasing music since 1998 when she did the Super Bowl in whatever, 2013. Bruno Mars had been releasing music for like four years. Yeah. And it's such a more quaint version of the Super Bowl halftime show. Yes. You're supposed to be amazed by this guy plays the drums or whatever. Not this phantasmagoric, unbelievable technology light show, all this Mm -hmm. stuff. He's an extremely able performer. He's fun to watch. That's clearly why they gave it to him with so little under his belt. They obviously knew that he could do it. And they gave four of his 13 minutes to the Red Hot Chili Peppers. (laughs) Just an extremely (laughs) perplexing decision then and now. Doesn't make any sense. Yeah. For an artist that is such a vacuous presence, how important is that to the success of this music to you? I think it is important. I think he's... Very engaging in the music videos. He's almost like engaging in like a game show host way or something. Totally. (laughs) He's very handsome and it's a sort of mutable handsomeness Mm -hmm. where he can show up with a pompadour one day and like a blown out afro the next. Right. Like an SNL performer. Yeah. Or a mannequin, like one who moves extremely well. Mm -hmm. It's certainly not the most interesting way of being a pop star, but it is for the type of music he makes, the image that he puts out there, the visuals he put out there are super effective. And we'll get into Uptown Funk, yeah. but I think the Uptown Funk video was a masterpiece. Yes, it's incredible. I think it's one of the best music videos of this century. Yeah, well, let's talk about Uptown Funk because the craziest part about the Super Bowl is that Bruno Mars not only does the Super Bowl with only four years of pop stardom under his belt, but he also doesn't have a signature song in the can yet, which comes out in 2014. They have to bring him back like two years later. Yeah, to do it. It's not going to be the Super Bowl unless we have Uptown Funk in here. It's unhinged to think that he did that before he had Uptown Funk which is by far Bruno's most successful single ever in a very full discography of successful singles. But this is a one-off single that's actually a Mark Ronson song off of Mark Ronson's Uptown special album that comes out that year. And I want to talk to the video too, but I think as a song, this sort of represents the apex of everything we've been talking about. I mean, this song is picking a very specific moment, even more so than Treasure, a very specific moment in Black pop history and meticulously recreating it. Talk to me about what this song is doing. yeah, they worked on the song for months. They had to get it exactly right, which is crazy to think about. Right. What it's going for is an extremely sleek, but also a sort of bumpy showmanship, a form of funk from the early 80s that drew on a lot of stuff in the past. If you look at Morris Day at the time, you see Little Richard in there. Right. But you also see the future, and that's what he's drawing yes. on. Yes. 
And so it has like a pastiche of a pastiche quality, but it's so good and it's so much fun. <laughs> oh God, yes. one of these songs where you would leave your house to buy coffee and hear it four times before you got back. Yeah. It became the monocultural hit in a way that is extremely difficult to pull off in this day and age. And it's fun as hell. It rocks. It's just a great song. It's a marvel. Girls hit It's so specific, and yet, it, as you said, because it's like a pastiche of a pastiche, it wraps so much of black music and soul history into it. Here's a list of artists I wrote down that I feel like this song is homaging in different ways. Cameo, Earth, Wind, and Fire, Shaka Khan, New Edition, Prince, Sugar Hill Gang, Gap Band, Apache, The Breaks, Atomic Dog. Rapper's Delight. <laughs> Rapper's Delight. <laughs> and I think what's so interesting to talk about is it's not just the musical homage that's so meticulous, it's also this specific brand of masculine presentation that happens on the song and Morris Day is very much this type of performer as well. Can you talk a little bit about that because that feels like it informs 24 Karat Magic and the future of Bruno Mars's musical persona? Yeah, yeah. There's like a fussiness to it. The whole primping thing. It's very culturally black which has bothered quite a few people. It's also the sort of song where when it became as popular as it became like 15 different people sued Bruno because they could hear whatever influence they had on it. Right. And they did have the influence. It's undeniable that you hear like oops upside your head in that song yes and din da da by george kranz for sure funk you up by the sequence They all suit it. Yes. They all try to get money. <laughs> and I think they all settled out of court. Yeah. The sexuality is silly and it's funny, but the silliness does not negate it. Mm. It's the whole, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we fucked? Right. But no, I actually really want to fuck. That's the vibe. It's funny because I used to play that song around my kids all the time and then had to start thinking about, is it all right if they're singing along with bitch say my name, you know who I am? <laughs> I ultimately came down on the side of, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And I think an element of the sexuality and presentation of the masculinity is also the meticulousness of the visual clothing aesthetic. And that becomes also a really important element of 24 Karat Magic as well, which is the Chucks with the Saint Laurent and the flashy, blingy, as you said, the kind of gold chaininess of the whole thing as well. The cars and the clothes, there's this very specific visual world that mm -hmm. gets built on this song and as like part of the persona as well that feels important here, I guess. Yeah. The sort of color palette, the aesthetic, it always reminded me a lot 
thought of Jonathan Demi movies from the 80s. That was my immediate thought. It was like, oh, he's doing something wild and married to the mob. It's this sort of beautiful Benetton vision of a world where all races are together to live in this live-action Looney Tunes cartoon where everybody's funky. And there's a lot of thought put into like, oh, the guys shining his shoes are going to be white guys and they're going to sing along with the hot damn part. Yes. It's very precise and it's one of those moments where the precision works to the part where I don't feel manipulated when I watch it. I'm just like, God damn, this guy's an entertainer. Look at him go. Agree. Undeniable. Undeniable. And I think it also addresses a period of music that becomes a style or underpinning of Bruno's music from here on out, which is where black music history and the evolution of hip hop and rap sort of emerged. I feel like this song captures that. And I feel like 24 Karat Magic is very engaged with the connection between 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, soul, funk, R&B, whatever, and the emergence of rapping. And then we'll talk about this on the Anderson Pac album, where some of the only actual contemporary flourishes on some of those Silk Sonic songs are when Anderson Pac actually gets on and starts rapping. So there's a moment in which hip hop history feels like it's being memorialized. Yeah. And he draws connections too, because All Gold Everything by Trinidad James was a current song when Upbound Funk came out and he quotes it heavily. Right. Don't believe me, just watch. And so All Gold Everything within rap was an extremely divisive song in that time because people thought it was super dumbed down and ratchet. I'm speaking in the stereotypical New York rap nerd viewpoint there. And I feel like Uptown Funk almost makes the case that that sort of flashiness is completely in keeping with all these other different periods in history when rap was first emerging. Right. Because Bruno doesn't really rap. And when he does, it's like Sugar Hill Gang rapping or it's like Curtis Blow. Right. Breaks in a bus, breaks on the car, breaks to make you a superstar, breaks to win and breaks to lose, but these here breaks rock your shoes, and these are the breaks. He's not trying to do the Migos flow. Right. It's also important groundwork, I think. So Bruno released his most recent solo album in 2016, which is 24 Karat Magic. We've been alluding to this already, but Uptown Funk clearly feels like the moment where he conceptualizes what this next album is going to be. The first single, the title track, feels like it's building on slash refining slash giving you another whirl at Uptown Funk. What do you think about the song 24 Karat Magic? I think it slaps. It slaps. But it was also like, oh, I see. He's just like, oh, you guys liked Uptown Funk, huh? Here's 10 more of them. Mm-hmm. And good, you know? <laughs> it's probably his best album. Unquestionably his best album. <laughs> this album rocks. I love this fucking album. But the thing for me is, as you mentioned, I think is such a good point. If you like what's being homaged, you're going to like the Bruno Mars song more. And so celebrating hip hop and R&B history from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, that's shit I like. Hell yeah. That's what I like. Tom, if you will. I think that this album is kind of no skips bangers, like straight on through. I like almost all of these songs and we could talk about Perm in one second, but the rest of the album, I mean, this is an album that's clearly homaging Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, homaging New Edition, homaging Bobby Brown, Jodeci, Boy Cement, Teddy Riley, Babyface. I love that stuff. And I think he does such an excellent job of recreating those sounds on a lot of these songs. And I find this album to 
be so much fun. Because I think what this album really finally fully dispenses with is anything other than the fun. There's no When I Was Your Man. There's no attempt to delve into the darkness of his post-cocaine arrest and make sense of that in the music. It is literally just a fucking fiesta the entire time. A block party. And I just love this album. Is there anything about this I haven't said aesthetically that feels important? And talk to me about how you feel about this record. I mean, I think it's very, very good. I wish it had anything as silly as Gorilla, I guess. It would be my only real complaint. I mean, Versace on the floor is pretty fucking funny. It is. It's also the closest thing there is to a ballad on the album. Yes. I love this. This might be my favorite Bruno Mars song. It's such a hit. I love, love, love this song. It's like SWV week meets new edition and sexual healing. And it's just hilarious. This is the album also where the lonely islandness of the whole thing feels the most present to me. This is one tick away from Dick in a Box, truly. <laughs> Which I like the lonely island. I'm not even mad at it. No. But it's so well done, Tom. Extremely well done. They sound like lost songs from this time period. And that could be such a trap because this music is so great. If it wasn't good, it would suck because you'd just be wanting to hear the new edition song instead or you'd want to be hearing the SWV song instead. But they're so good that they hold up to those songs, which is the highest praise I could give them. Yeah, they do. And my favorite Bruno Mars song is also on this album. It's Finesse. The way he did the New Jack Sweet thing and then the remix with Cardi. And then when the video comes out and it's either on the In Living Color set has been like preserved in some warehouse somewhere or he rebuilt the thing. Even the film stock looks like it's in living color. Yeah. Incredible. I just about jumped out of my chair the first time I watched that. It's amazing. It's funny. Most of the stuff that Bruno homages is stuff from when I was a little kid or not really an active music listener. But In Living Color was my favorite show when I was 11 years old. Right. I'm sure it has not aged well in many aspects, <laughs> but he didn't recapture any of that stuff. He's not doing Handyman in the video. But when he's just dancing on the set and Cardi is a fly girl in it and she's got the big door knocker earrings. Yes. And they're doing the running man and stuff. It made me feel so good. It stopped being theoretical nostalgia and became actual nostalgia. Right. That's the thing that I wrote in my notes here. I was like, this album makes me so happy. I love listening to this album. The perfect Baby Be Mine recreation on Chunky is just so great. I love that song. It's so, so good. Chunky. Straight up and down, that new jack swing, shy baby, I'm yours. Up. 
You know what I love about it too is the references are so precise. It's not just like, oh, I'm gonna make a disco song like Treasure or whatever. He picks these micro-y moments. He slices it thin like garlic. Yeah. I love, love, love these songs. There are ones like Perm, for instance, where I'm like, ugh, I don't know if that's working for me so much. It's giving sub James Brown, but it's when he tries to be James Brown, I'm like, bitch, you're not James Brown. Yeah. Perm is where it starts to feel like you're a half step away from minstrelsy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is where you really got to watch yourself there, Bruno. And he mostly does. That's the one he won album of the year for, which there was backlash, but it was not as heavy as the backlash every other year when some bullshit wins album of the year. They shouldn't have won album of the year, but the Grammys never, ever, 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 ever picked the right album. Yeah. And this one seemed less objectionable than many. And there were people who accused him of cultural appropriation and whatnot. And that's not my fight to fight, but you can kind of see where they're coming from there. A hundred percent. And on a, on a song like Perm, it really, really becomes glare. A hundred percent. But that aside, I think what maybe makes this album the most successful, you know, of course, it's the evolution of his artistry and the precision of the artistry that I think reaches its apex on this music. But I also think it's the album that is not trying trying to convince you that he's a central figure to this music. Yes. I think that's the thing that makes it the most successful Bruno Mars album to me. The other albums are still trying to overlay the feeling that he is there, that there's something there. There's the performance of humanity and it's hollow. And I think that that bothers me and distracts me on the previous music. And I think what he nails here and feels integral to making this album enjoyable in a way where I don't have to do this mental gymnastics to get there is that this album is not trying to convince you that there's any beating heart at the center of this. Right. It's reveling in what Bruno does well, which is a version of mimicry. It's a celebration of circus. It doesn't even imply death. A hundred percent. And I think that's why this is so far and away the most successful Bruno Mars album and is another very successful album for Bruno Mars. The title track goes to number five. That's what I like, which is a song we have not talked about, which is kind of a little Jodeci, a little R. Kelly, a little new edition, but also is probably the only song on here that employs super modern instrumentation. It's got some trap drum programming on it that feels very much 2016 in a way that many of these other songs don't. Goes number one. The finesse remix goes number three. So this is another hugely successful Bruno Mars album. And yet through all of it and the Grammy and album of the year and all that shit, it still doesn't feel like Bruno Mars is a pop star amongst the other pop stars that are huge at the time. As you said, he's consistently omnipresent and probably more successful consistently than many of his peers. And yet he never feels like he's like a central part of the pop music conversation. Yeah. It's a strange dichotomy that omnipresence, but also the lack of centrality is so strange. It's really weird. And I think it becomes even more pronounced with the subsonic record. Right. That one has the out of being a side project and not a mainline Bruno Mars album, even though it has every single hallmark of a Bruno Mars album. The length, the consistency, the specificity of the homages. Mm -hmm. And that was so far removed from everything that was happening in 
2021 or whatever with other pop stars you can get the sense of like oh taylor swift and olivia rodrigo were mad at each other the entirety of pop stardom is like a soap opera that we're all watching mm-hmm. and bruno mars does not participate in that at all Mm-mm. to the point where it almost becomes can you call him a pop star right he's working with a lot of the same raw materials and a lot of the same pastiche sensibilities as The Weeknd, but you never hear Bruno Mars and The Weeknd mentioned together because they're doing such fundamentally different things. And The Weeknd is about, let me plumb the depths of the darkness of my persona. And Bruno Mars is just like, hey, partying's fun, right? Yeah, and The Weeknd, even in his explicit references to past musical styles, feels utterly modern as a on-record presence. There's something about The Weeknd that even as he clearly references past styles, there's no question about that, but there's always this feeling of The weekend as a creature of the contemporary world, and Bruno Mars does not give you that feeling really at all. With The weekend, there's so much there there in the persona. It's interesting to hear him sing about himself, and it's all about his psyche. What is Bruno Mars' psyche? I have no idea. I don't know. No clue. And is that basicness, or is it unbelievable, canny instincts? He has shown so much more longevity than so many other pop stars who came up with him. And is that a defense mechanism? Is he putting walls up? Is that a smarter way to live your life in public than these other guys? I don't know. Let's just touch briefly on the Silk Sonic album. 2016's 24 Karat Magic is Bruno Mars' last solo album. We're currently in the year of our Lord 2023. He released this collaborative record with Anderson Pock in 2021, An Evening with Silk Sonic. How does this album work for you? Do you like this record? How does it compare to 24 Karat Magic? Let's just, just quickly talk about it as music, and then I want to conclude our conversation about where Bruno Mars might be in the current pop form of it, which is a little bit still, I think, unclear. I think the Silk Sonic album is quite good, as I think 24 Karat Magic is quite good. I think 24 Karat Magic is maybe like an 8.5 out of 10, and Silk Sonic's like an 8 out of 10. Yeah. It's going for a different thing. Yeah. The inclusion of Anderson Pac is interesting to me. Anderson Pac is a very famous and popular artist. But he came up also under Dre, but kind of through Backpack Rap. Mm-hmm. And he has records on Stone's Throw. And that is so not Bruno Mars's background. And it's more Anderson Pac fitting his style to Bruno Mars's than vice versa. It's another half-hour album. And here they're going for the 70s Philly Delphonics type thing. And it's really good. There's really, really good songs on there. I have a good time listening to it. It's not moving. No. It's not exciting, exactly. But it's just like, oh yeah, no, they did that. They did a really good job there. It feels good. It makes me happy. It's the same way as 24 Karat Magic is. I smile the whole time I'm listening to this album. And they are pretty similar. I was realizing that both Bruno Mars and Anderson Pocket played drums at the Super Bowl. Mm. That's the thing <laughs> they have in common. They're both drawing on a lot of the same things. Anderson Pock can rap and Bruno, I don't even know that I could say he can't, but he doesn't really. Yes. What he does is he, he raps the way that someone would rap on a funk song in the 70s. Totally. And it's like a pre-hip-hop rapping. Right, it's illustrating where rap comes from more so than actual rap itself, yeah. Uh, 
Again on this record, that line between mimicry and comedy, it even reaches its apex on here. They're almost making fun of the lover men of the 70s. Yes. That line on leave the door open, you know, if you smoke what you smoke, I got the haze. If you hungry girl, I got fillets. It's such a perfect illustrative vibe of the masculine sexual mystique of the 70s or whatever. Because I think it's all about this sort of like luxurious lover man on the bearskin rug, broiling up a fillet. But it's like part of it is this is loving ribbing of what they're homaging, even including Bootsy Collins on the album himself, kind of lightly making fun of his persona. Which I feel like Bootsy Collins was always lightly making fun of his own persona. Yes, exactly, exactly. The Silk Sonic album, another successful venture for Bruno, although probably not on the same level as his solo albums. It has one incredible hit in Leave the Door Open, one of my favorite Bruno Mars songs. Very enjoyable, consistently good album. Really liked listening to it. We do live in a universe that seemingly values what Bruno Mars is good at less than ever. I mean, if he was even a bit of an outlier when he emerged, although I guess more in conversation with the broad sloganeering of a Katy Perry than he is with contemporary post-Lord pop stars, post-Lana pop stars, whatever. What do you imagine? Do you think Bruno Mars is just going to come back in 2024 and have another juggernaut, empty, amazingly fun, pastiche soul album? What do you envision Bruno Mars doing? What would you like him to do? And does Bruno Mars just continue to sort of defy what the expectations are from pop stars? Because maybe the conclusion is that he is not a pop star. Right. It's so hard to say because he hasn't missed yet. Right. What he does is not easy. And every success that he's had has been against conventional wisdom. Mm -hmm. Even Just the Way You Are or even Locked Out of Heaven. You couldn't listen to those and be like, oh, he really read the zeitgeist. He's just pitched a fastball right down the plate and everybody's instantly going to love this. It's a little bit unlikely. And the Soul Lover Man stuff of the last 10 years is super unlikely. Right. The fact that it worked, that he pulled it off is crazy. So I would have to imagine that he's going to be doing something that's on that continuity just because he has shown no signs of wanting to leave it. Nor do we want, I mean, do I want the Bruno Mars takes a confessional turn album? I don't think so at this point. Yeah. I don't want that. I don't want his regional Mexican album. No. <laughs> I don't want him to make a fucking hyper pop album. I don't want any of that. Oh God, that's un- it's terrible. Yeah, I don't want him to make a goddamn Sabrina Carpenter bedroom pop record or go Lana Del Rey on us. You think about all the different things he could do if he tried to make a rap record or try to make a Beyonce record. He could maybe make a house record. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that sounds the most fun is for him to pick another precise sliver of it. pop history and go all the way there. That's the most fun thing that Bruno does to me. And I think he's gotten increasingly better at that. So, you know, I think we've done the 70s, 80s, 90s, soul, yeah, R&B, yeah. lover man shtick. I think house could be interesting. Like, I think picking a very particular moment in pop history and expanding it into something album length. It makes sense. That's what I hope for. Now that I sort of realize when and why Bruno works for me. Yeah, he could do an early 90s house album. For sure. He could do a 90s slow jam, silk and shy type record. Honestly, that seems like the likeliest thing. I could see that. But he could do a late 90s TRL boy band type record too. And he made a song for Menudo. One of his first songwriting credits was for Menudo and it's a very post-Max Martin sounding boy band song of that time period. So he could do that. And we were saying off mic that there's some Timberlake in him. Oh, for sure. And Timberlake is struggling right now. I think in some ways he out Timberlake to Timberlake. I mean, he's a 
better music maker than Justin Timberlake? Question mark. I mean, it honestly seems undeniable. Yes. He doesn't have a Crimea River. No. Or like a Future Sex Love Sounds. But Justin Timberlake's been throwing up bricks for so long that there's only so many ways that you can read what he does. Read his whole career now. And Bruno's like a one-man band man and Justin has benefited mightily from his collaborators. Yes. It is very obvious the role that Pharrell and Timberland have played in the best Justin Timberlake music. Yes. Bruno has not needed the Neptunes. He hasn't needed that. He's got the sneezing tins. He's got shampoo, press, and curl, of course. I tell you what, though. If Bruno Mars made a 1999 Neptunes record, I would be all the way in. I love that. I love that. And there's lots of different kind of directions you could take that in because you could do Noriega records and then you could also do I'm a Slave for You and Milkshake and all of that kind of stuff. And like, I love you. That's fun. I like that. Anyway, I'll be very interested to know because for someone that is so centrist driven, he's really enigmatic at the same time. And I think he reads the room to an extent where he can figure out what people might want to hear at the moment yes. without it really necessarily interacting with the zeitgeist in any meaningful way. 100%. All right, let's talk about the pop pantheon. I think we've gotten to that point of the conversation. So where do you see Bruno Mars fitting into the pop pantheon? I mean, again, as we said, he's a little bit of an unclassifiable force in pop music, but he's also been an incredibly consistent pop force who clearly has a ton of commercial power and purchase 13, 15 years into his career. What's your vibe on that? It's funny. Looking at the criteria for the tiers, he fulfills so many of the criteria for tier two, Right. but I don't think he's a tier two guy. Mm. I don't think he's important enough. I don't think he's influential. You could say that English language BTS singles are going for a Bruno Mars thing. True. There's a few things where you can kind of read his influence, but he's such a cypher and he's such a pastiche artist that you can't point to too many things and be like, this is influenced by Bruno Mars. Things sound the way they do because of Bruno Mars. I don't see too much of that. It's hard. My conflict, I think, which is what you're sort of getting at here is I think by metric success, he feels like he should be in tier two. I feel like he could launch an arena tour tomorrow and go play three nights at Madison Square Garden. Could Bruno Mars do a stadium tour? That's what I'm thinking. Would you go see Bruno Mars in a stadium? I've never seen him live. I would like to go to a Bruno Mars show. Yeah, I would too. But again, it's not because I'm a big fan. That's the weirdest part. Any other stadium show I'm going to, it's because I love Beyonce so much. Take my $500. I don't give a shit. I need to go see Taylor Swift. I need to go see Beyonce. I love you. You mean something to me. Bruno Mars is more just like, he's going to do a good show. I'm going to have a fun night. Yeah, I bet I would have a good time. I would have a good ass time. That's all it is. I'm not going to cry at a Bruno Mars show. Does he have that kind of draw? I mean, he's obviously on a very successful Vegas residency, but that makes a lot of sense. He's very aligned with the ethos and vibe of Las Vegas. And Las Vegas is perfect for him because it's the type of city where somebody probably shows up and they're like, I'll see whatever. There's a lot of tourists in Vegas who are like, yeah, who's playing tonight? Let's go see that. And I think Bruno's perfect for that. He was literally in Honeymoon (laughs) in Vegas. He was built for it. He's living his child fantasy out. That's the thing that's hard for me is, I mean, the guy's got bona fide hits. Hits that you could still play and they are still memorable and everyone on earth knows them. I mean, Just the Way You Are, Grenade, 
Unfortunately, probably nothing on you. Locked out of heaven for sure. When I was your man for sure. Treasure for sure. Uptown Funk, absolutely, obviously. All three singles from 24 Karat Magic, Leave the Door Open. I mean, that's 11, 12 enduring hit songs. Out of a discography with like 45 songs in it. Literally, the hit rate is kind of undeniably amazing. It is crazy. It's crazy. Every album is a greatest hit album. 100%. And then, of course, Katy Perry being an artist that I emblematically always reference as the tier three queen. I think Bruno Mars has a way bigger chance of having a hit album in 2023 or 2024 than Katy Perry does. Because he's never fallen off. I feel like his distance from the center of conversation places him firmly in tier three. But if he can keep this string going, if he can put out another two albums that are anywhere near as big as the last three. Yes. Then what, he's like 37 or something? Yeah. And he still looks exactly the same as he did 15 years ago. Totally. It seems like there is still somehow room for upward mobility there. Mm-hmm. I think that's the answer. I feel like he's tippy, tippy top of tier three. I think even one more album. I think if Bruno Mars has a fourth studio album sometime in the middle of the 2020s that is in any way as successful as his last three studio albums have been, I think that puts him in tier two, just by undeniable force of metrics. I mean, that would mean that Bruno Mars has been making hit music for nearly two decades at that point. It's funny though, what does it say that we're trying to talk ourselves out of tier two instead of trying to talk ourselves into it? That he's not inspiring the passion in us to want to argue that he's higher than he is. It's because I think when we think about those upper echelon pop stars, it's that innovative quality read you the thing that I have in the notes, which is that they are generation defining. They have moments of reinvention that help us understand them in newer and deeper expansive ways. It's this hard thing where he's a big pop force. So he hits the metrics that a lot of these other stars do in it, and maybe even more so than some of them, but he doesn't do the things that other pop stars do or that make other pop stars continuously interesting to us. He plays by his own rules in this weird way that I think makes it a little bit hard. And also, for better or worse, at least for me, devalues what he does. I think Bruno Mars is great at what he does, but I don't think Bruno Mars is a great pop star. Right. I think Bruno Mars is a fun project. He is not a great. Bruno Mars has eras, but a Bruno Mars eras tour would be the funniest shit ever. It would not work. <laughs> He comes out with the painted on mustache. There'd be the hat era. It's all just how tall the pompadour is. <laughs> <laughs> the Bruno Mars era story, I can't. I think that's really it. He's not a great pop star. Yeah, he is an extremely gifted performer and songwriter. Yes. Which are two discrete skill sets, and he crushes both of them. And those two things together, you would think, would add up to equal pop stardom, but they don't. And he's got the consistency and the longevity. Yeah, it's just some intangible thing. I think we got to throw him in tier three. I think you're right. It's hard, but I think that's where he is. We'll reconvene around Bruno Mars TK fourth studio album whenever that arrives. If we're underestimating Bruno Mars, if the world is underestimating Bruno Mars and that somehow helps nudge Bruno Mars to further greatness, yes. then fine. Good. We did our job. Agree. A hundred percent. All right. Final question. I know you took your answer already with Gorilla, so you're going to have to come up with something else. What is an underrated Bruno Mars song? We only have 45. We probably talked about a good 32 of them on this show, but what is an underrated Bruno Mars song that we could send the show out on? You know, something that he did, and it's not really his song, but Wake Up in the Sky 
with Gucci Man and Kodak Black wow. is a rare moment where he really, really interacted with the rap zeitgeist of the moment. Mm. He doesn't transcend on it. He doesn't even really sing hard on that song, but he makes himself fit into it. And he's really just playing a supporting role in the great Gucci Mane redemption of 2016 or whatever it was. But as someone who was emotionally invested in the Gucci Mane narrative, mm. it made me feel good to see him do that, to do it well, to know his role in it, and to not water anything down. Mm, love that. I did not see that coming, but I do like that song. So let's go out on Wake Up in the Sky. Tom Bryan, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, what a pleasure. I drink till I'm drunk, Till I'm high, castle on the hill, wake up in the sky, you can't tell me I all right, so there you have it. Pop Pantheon Bruno Mars officially in tier three. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you so, so much to the incredible Tom Bryan for being such a wonderful guest. To Russ Martin for everything he does to make this show happen every month. To PJ Brignetti for his help editing this episode and Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod and me at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Instagram and Twitter. Cop our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Come to Gorgeous Gorgeous New York, Spooky Gorgeous on October 27th, to Gorgeous Gorgeous LA on November 10th, and to Gorgeous Gorgeous Times Who Weekly on November 16th. Come to Pop Pantheon Live, Britney's memoir, music, and legacy at the Crawford in Pasadena on November 2nd. Send in your Britney-related questions, and we may be able to answer them either on the live show or in additional content for this podcast to Pop Pantheon Pod at gmail.com. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye. Yeah, I